Amen. Please be seated. Come to hear the word of God, to hear read and to hear proclaimed. Acknowledging that God's word alone is life and light to us. Let us pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word. Our gracious Father, once more we bow our hearts and our heads before you, acknowledging your sovereignty and your goodness, your faithfulness and your mercy. But all of these we learn of in your word, just as we learn of our sin and of the hope of forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ, we learn in your word. Lord, as we suffer in various ways throughout this life, we find hope in your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear this day, that you would give us hearts to receive. Indeed, grant us faith to believe that your word is true. That, Lord, you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word, that the proclamation of it would indeed be faithful to your word and edifying to your people. Bless, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the New Testament to the Gospel of John, John chapter 14. By way of preface, I feel a bit like a mother who has overprepared a meal for a family. As I look at my notes, and I don't know what I was thinking to tackle all of John 14. I've been working through the Gospel of John in Hillsdale, and it is taking me nine weeks to preach chapter 14. So again, what was I thinking? But God's Word is true and faithful, uh, and I pray that even if we get an overview of this chapter, that it will be a blessing to our faith. John 14, beginning in verse 1, I remind you that this is the Word of the living God, inspired, inerrant, and infallible. So let us give our attention to its reading. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves." Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, in you, in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Gospel of John is one of four testimonies to the life and ministry of our Savior, Jesus Christ. John's Gospel, as you are probably aware, is different from the other three Gospels, often referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. They take the same approach, if you will, the same eye to the subject. Their stories follow a similar pattern and order. John's Gospel is a bit different. It is unique. His perspective begins with the narrative of creation or before creation in the beginning with a purposeful echo of Genesis chapter 1. Moreover, John doesn't follow quite the same pattern as the others do. He takes us from Jesus' baptism at the start of his ministry through to his death and resurrection that is true. But throughout it, John is concerned to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament has promised. That he is very God of very God. And he does this especially with an eye to the story of the Exodus and God's working with his people there. In John chapter 6, Jesus describes himself as the bread that has come down from heaven, likening himself to the manna in the wilderness. In John chapter 4 and in John chapter 7, Jesus speaks of himself as living water as offering the living water, echoing, of course, the water from a rock in the book of Exodus. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus has said that he is the light of the world. 
just like the lights in the tabernacle and later the temple. And perhaps most clearly this is seen, Jesus showing that he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises in the several I am statements that we find throughout John's Gospel, seven in all. And in John chapter 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. This, all of this is important to understand as we come to our chapter this morning. It's, it's part of what is often referred to as the upper room discourse. The gospel writer has been taking us at, 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 at a breakneck speed through Jesus' life and ministry. And it seems that as he comes to this moment where Jesus is gathered with his disciples in the upper room, time slows down, or at least the narrative slows down. And from chapters 14 through 17, we get sort of a, 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 a view, a, a seat in that room as Jesus offers comfort and help and hope to his disciples. And what an important time this would have been for them. If you remember in chapter 13, Jesus has just washed their feet. He has just dismissed Judas Iscariot and he has told them that he's leaving. We're very familiar with the gospel story. We know in the story that Jesus is leaving. The children among us would know exactly what has to happen. Jesus has to be arrested. He has to be crucified. He has to die. He has to be raised to new life. But those disciples who would have heard Jesus say those things, their whole life was wrapped up with him and with him in his physical presence. And how would they move forward? How would they, how, how would they possibly move on if Jesus was taken from them? They had witnessed all that Jesus had done. They had heard his teachings in person. The privilege that they experienced would cost them a great deal of suffering and sorrow. But in the midst of this moment, what's really remarkable is that Jesus takes the time, and not a little bit of time, but a lot of time. As I said, the, the narrative slows down for us, and he takes the time to comfort their hearts. He takes the time knowing that their hearts are troubled because of what he has just said to speak directly to them about the hope and the help that they have. And here, beloved, is I think where it's so important for us. For this has happened long ago, it's true, but Jesus' words are recorded and they are written down for our sake so that we would come this morning, and see, this is the joy of believing in a sovereign God, that we would come this morning, this is the very word that Jesus wants us to hear for our hope and for our comfort, for we know what it is like to have troubled hearts. As J.C. Ryle comments on this passage, he says, heart trouble is the commonest thing in the world. No rank or class, no condition is exempt from it. No bars or bolts or locks can keep it out, partly from inward causes and partly from outward, partly from the body and partly from the mind, partly from what we love and partly from what we fear. The journey of life is full of trouble. Even the best of Christians have many bitter cups to drink between grace and glory. Even the holiest saints find the world a veil of tears. Here's where we want to find hope this morning, beloved, is to acknowledge that we too experience, if you're not experiencing it now, you certainly have, or if you haven't, you certainly will, troubled hearts. And so Jesus offers help for troubled hearts. Notice first that Jesus gives hope for troubled hearts. And I think the hope begins by the fact that Jesus acknowledges troubled hearts. 
It's often thought at times that Christianity is this kind of view, this kind of religion that helps us to float above the world's troubles. As though anything that happens, it doesn't affect us. If somebody passes away, it's okay because we'll see them in glory. No, the truth of the matter is that we have troubled hearts. And if you read in the Old Testament, especially something like Psalm 73, you will see that knowing the truth of God's word and the hope that we have is actually going to create even more of a troubled heart for us because we long for eternity, because we long for glory, not our glory, but the glory of our Savior to be made visible and for this this passing world to be done and the new creation to break in, even as, as it is already broken in in the forgiveness of our sins. And so we don't want to deny troubles. We don't want to pretend as though they don't happen. We don't want to deny sickness or sorrow as some so-called prosperity gospels will try to do. Such an approach is dangerous, not just because it is discouraging, but it's dangerous because it cuts us off from both the comfort of a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, as well as comfort cutting us off from the comfort and help that he gives. So what does Jesus offer? I believe that he begins by speaking of the big picture. If you will, the disciples are so good at looking around at their circumstances and pointing out all of the problems. You're probably good at this as well. You're probably good at looking at everything that you believe could be going better in your life. I remember an OP pastor one time, and I'm sure he wasn't the only one or the first one to say it, but it stuck with me when he said it. He said, if you had the wisdom of God, the life you have right now, with all of its circumstances, is the life you would pray for if you had God's wisdom. Well, Jesus, if you will, takes us from the perspective that is for us often, so often myopic, only what we can see, only what we believe should be changed, and he shows us something grander. Now, notice he doesn't show us just something grander in the sense of of, of looking at, at this world from a different perspective. He shows us eternity. In my Father's house are many rooms. Moreover, he shows us that he is actually here to go and to prepare a place for us. Now, you might wonder what's going on. Like, what, you know, I mean, God does not have parts. Uh, um, you know, is, how, do we, how do we envision God having uh, a place with many rooms? Or if you have the King James in front of you, uh, many mansions, uh, um, I, I get the sense that what Jesus is speaking of here is contrasting the temporal uh, nature of the world in which we live now with the eternal hope that we have. In the same way the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, for we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's spoken about Father's house, and so here Paul talks about the house that we have. But it's also a note that that, that it's called a house to show that it is, in fact, our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. And notice what Jesus does. It's not just enough that there is this place uh, where where God dwells. It's not just enough that there is this kind of uh, eternal perspective. He says that if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Notice what Jesus does here. He speaks not just of the place that he goes to prepare, but he promises to return and to take his disciples to that place. 
It's a gracious way of assuring the disciples so they would have confidence that what their Lord has said was true, for God cannot lie. And if he has promised it, he will surely bring it to pass. He desires to comfort his disciples with the idea that nothing could cast them out of the heavenly place, uh, of the heavenly house. It's a place prepared for them. Now, again, I think that this is on a personal level so comforting as we think about the realities of our own lives and the sin that continues to dwell within us and the way in which we recognize that sin and, and, and its presence. And we can find ourselves at times wondering, are we really made for heaven? Are we really going to make it? Jesus gives this promise. And it's a promise on which we can hold on to. But notice also that Jesus has assured us that there is a place and that he will bring his people to it. This is one of those major storylines throughout the entire scripture. For God created a people and a place. In the very beginning, God made Adam and Eve and he placed them in the Garden of Eden. The fall that happens in Genesis 3 not only broke off their communion with the Lord, but also made them wanderers in a fallen world. We read in Genesis 3 at the end that the Lord drove them out of Eden and he placed the cherubim with the fiery swords to keep them out. This was perhaps most clearly pictured for us as Israel wandered in the wilderness before entering the promised land. But even when they entered, it was not a secure land because it was lost. But Jesus is saying that he's going to make it perfect and it set it so that their place in heaven can never be lost. Their place in that new creation in this Father's house. So the first help for troubled hearts that Jesus gives is hope. Hope that despite the circumstances we face, that this is not the end. Hope that no matter what may come our way, that God is not aloof, that he is not ignoring us, but rather that he knows and he cares for us, that he's prepared a place for us. Notice second, that Jesus gives himself. He gives himself, and this comes by way of a few different interactions that Jesus has with his disciples. I want to look at them together just briefly. First, it begins with Thomas's doubt. Jesus has just said to them, you know the way to which I am going. You know where I am going. And, Je- and Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? We can say that this verse shows how rashly and foolishly a disciple can talk under the influence of their own discouragement. Could you imagine being there in the upper room with Jesus? He has just said that, that, that something is true and the first thing out of your mouth is to, is, is, is to fight with him, to disagree. Well, Lord, I know you said this, but... And again, this is, uh, this is one of the reasons why I love this upper room moment with the disciples is because I think we can really relate to this in a very practical level, that we can look at those moments where we struggle with the truths of God's word. We know that God is good, but this is what the psalmist again in Psalm 73 said, surely, surely God is good. But as for me, my foot had slipped. Thomas, in the midst of his, of, of, of his uh, struggle, shows his doubt. That's one of the reasons why he's called Doubting Thomas. He's one of the 11 faithful disciples that flatly declares that Jesus is wrong. And again, Jesus takes the time to respond to Thomas, and that in itself is a comfort. 
The fact that Thomas could express his contradiction of Jesus' words reminds us that we can take even our doubts of God's promises to him in prayer. But notice what Jesus says in response. He doesn't sit down and say, well, let me just reason with you and show you exactly what it is that I meant and why I said this and all of that. He simply says, I am the way and the truth and the life. This is why I, na- I titled this second point that Jesus gives himself for troubled hearts. For beloved, there's nothing, I mean, I mean, I suppose there are things that Jesus could have done. Uh, I don't want to say there's nothing Jesus could have done about their trouble at that time, but he was going to the cross. That was the foreordained plan by God between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before the creation of the world. And this was going to happen, that Jesus took on flesh and that he was going to die upon the cross and so in that sense, there was not something, there was nothing that Jesus could do to assuage that troubled heart that Thomas and the others were going to feel. And yet he could offer himself. Now this, of course, is why he has come from heaven to earth. This is why he is going to the cross. He is offering himself for his people. And so we can say that, 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 that in, in, in response to Thomas's complaint, that we have one of the most grand verses of scripture it is as one commentator put it one of those deep statements which no exposition can thoroughly unfold and exhaust it begins with that divine claim jesus says i am the great i am the one who 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 revealed himself to moses of the burning bush the i am who i am this is jesus And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Again, here we find great comfort in the claim that Jesus makes, that he gives himself, for we know how easily we fall fall short of God's glory. We begin going back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve being driven out because of their sin, because they had disobeyed God. They had lost the way, the truth, and the life that eternal life that was promised and shown and signified in the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, the truth of God's word. They believed the word of the serpent. Did God really say the way that they had in walking and communing with the Lord? All of that was lost. And Jesus comes and says that he is the way, that he is the truth, and that he is the life. He opens the way back for us that we might go before our God. The way that was shut, the truth that was ignored, the life that was lost, it is all given to us in Jesus Christ. For he is the way. He is the way to heaven and peace with God. He is not only the guide and the teacher and the lawgiver like Moses, he himself is the door, the ladder, and the road through which we, through whom we must draw near to God. He has opened the way to the tree of life, which was closed by Adam when Adam and Eve fell by the satisfaction that he made for us on the cross. Through his blood, we draw near with boldness and have access with confidence into God's presence. Jesus is the way. He is also the truth. And the whole substance of, of, of all that we believe, that is of understanding who God is and what he requires of us, it is, it is in Christ that we see it most clearly. Without Jesus, the wisest unbeliever, as one commentator put it, gropes in gross darkness. 
before he came, even, even those in the Old Testament saw through a glass darkly, as the Apostle Paul says. But Jesus is the truth. That is when Christ in whom are hidden all the wisdom, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, when he has come, he gives us his word, which is the truth. And he is the life. Again, notice that Jesus is offering himself when it comes to the doubt that Thomas speaks. Let's move ahead to Philip's request. Beginning in verse eight, it says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. You know, again, it's remarkable to think that here in the middle of the upper room moment when Jesus is explaining things so carefully uh, and, and properly to his disciples, having told Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, you would think in that moment that had we heard that, we would say, that's enough, Lord. We will follow you, whatever it takes. Philip turns around and says, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Here we see a very different approach to the question that Thomas has raised. There seems to be some doubt still, even in Philip's mind, about the goodness of Christ. He is going to depart from them. He is going to leave, and he is going to go to the cross. And as far as they are concerned in that moment, that will be the end. They don't see how it can, how it can turn out any other way. If Jesus leaves them, they are undone. Now, in that sense, we can, we can relate to that. Of course, that's true. If Jesus were to leave us, we would be undone. And so it seems that Thomas and Philip are trying to understand more and more about what Jesus is trying to say and about the direction he's going to go. But Philip's request is peculiar, isn't it? We know, of course, there's a great possibility of knowing God. He has revealed himself to us in creation, in providence, and in his word especially. We can know God, and we know, of course, that we know God through Jesus, and that's, of course, what, Philip, what Jesus is getting at in his response to Philip. As Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. To see Christ is to see the Father is what Jesus says. That Philip, in his desire to see something external, something more, must be content with Jesus. In fact, we can say that with regard to the way that Jesus makes the way so that we can draw near to the Father, but that we must be content with the way that Jesus has made. And again, this is where we find our struggle for Philip's request is a natural one. For who among us wouldn't want just, just a glimpse of glory so that we can endure the trials that we face on earth. As 16th century theologian Philip Melanchthon remarked, the petition represents the natural wish of man in every stage or every age. Men feel an inward craving everywhere to see God. This is true. This is true of the world around us. This is true of our own hearts. And the question becomes, will we be content with what God has given to us? Jesus gives himself. Jesus gives himself. He says, if you have seen me, then you have seen the Father. Now, I must make a point here, and I, I hope not to belabor this, um, because Jesus says, you know, what does he mean when he says that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Throughout John's gospel, there are three different words that are used to mean see. There are three different Greek words that mean see. 
The first word is pretty straightforward. It means to see something and report the facts of it. And John uses this in various instances. There's another word where we get the English word to theorize or theory from. And it carries with it the idea of observation beyond mere sight. It comes with consideration. There's a third word. And it carries with it the idea of understanding, to experience, to see with comprehension. And that's the word that Jesus uses here. That's why he keeps using the term know and see interchangeably. It's not a mere knowledge that affects the mind, but one that reaches to the will and the experience as well. To the point that we can say, if we have Christ, we have the Father that by faith we, we take hold of the truth that are offered to us that is, of course, the, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Jesus gives himself for troubled hearts. He gives himself because he is the one who can satisfy our craving hearts. Next, Jesus shows the importance of prayer, and I won't spend a lot of time here, but he he goes on to talk about uh, prayer and its importance. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We we acknowledge, of course, that prayer is a means of grace. Jesus here seems to assure that when his people pray in his name, that he not only hears, but he will answer. But I think that there's a, a case to be made that the scope of our asking must be in Christ's name. I don't mean by that the way that it was used. And for those of you, well, most of you don't know my, my checkered past before coming to Sovereign Grace in 2001. I was part of the Assemblies of God and I was part of other charismatic denominations that would often use in Jesus' name as a kind of magic word to be put at the end of a prayer. But that's not what Jesus gets at here. no. In Jesus' name means to be according to the character of Christ. That is, that as we pray these, the, these words and as we pray in Christ's name, we are asking for help and for hope that he will indeed provide for what we need, but ultimately that he will make us more like himself. And here is the great comfort and insurance, assurance that we have from Jesus. What we ask, he will do. It is not down to our own efforts to save or to sanctify. It is not down to our efforts to bring the fullness of the kingdom of God. He assures us that he is the one who will do it. And so Jesus gives hope. Jesus gives himself. And lastly, Jesus promises help for troubled hearts. And it should be Jesus promises the helper. He says there in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Undoubtedly in your translation, helper is capitalized there for he goes on to speak of him as the spirit of truth. Jesus will ask and the Father will hear and he will answer and he will give another helper In the Greek language, there are two different words that are used for another. There is one term that speaks of another as a different kind of thing. Say you were working one job and you wanted to switch careers and so you took another job. It's a different job altogether. But the word that is used here 
is the Greek term for another that means of the same kind. For instance, children, if you asked your parents for another dessert, you were wanting the same kind which you have just had. Jesus promises another helper. The one for whom Christ will ask and the Father will give is none other than the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, the Trinity. He is another helper. He is another helper in the sense that the Father is a helper. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Psalm 30 and verse 10. Hebrews 13 and verse 6, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Not only is the Father a helper, the Son is a helper. John makes it clear that this first helper is Jesus himself. For in 1 John 2 and verse 1, when Jesus tells us that, or when John tells us that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The Greek word for advocate there in 1 John 2, 1 is the same word translated as helper here in John 14. Jesus was the first helper who after he ascended gave us another helper. The Holy Spirit is our helper. The helper that implies that we are unable in ourselves to accomplish the task. And again, if we think about the troubled heart context, it makes sense. For there they are going to be left. Jesus is going to go and they are going to be discouraged. So discouraged, if you read in Luke chapter 24, as the, as, as the disciples are on the road to Emmaus, they are just, they are undone. They do not understand how this fits into the plan. Now, I know that because we've read the gospel so many times, we scratch our heads and we say, how do you not know this was the plan? But they didn't see how it fit into the plan. And so they were discouraged and distraught. And so the promise is that Jesus would give another helper, one who would come alongside, who would enable, empower, and help them to be able to accomplish the task that Jesus had given to them. He is none other than the spirit of truth. In fact, Jesus says in that day in verse 20, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you in that day. Now there's a big debate and I won't take you into it, but that day can either be the resurrection day, the day of Pentecost or the day of Jesus return. I, whenever I find myself faced with a question like that among commentators where they're all battling it out, I often will say, why not all of them? Why not? After all, it is in his resurrection that some of the disciples begin to understand. It is on the day of Pentecost that Peter would stand up and proclaim the gospel in Acts chapter 2 and 3,000 souls would be added to the church that day. And it is, of course, the day of his return when we will know in more fullness and more glory the way in which our Savior has loved us and has sustained us throughout our lives. On that day, we will know even more fully than we do now, the relationship between the Father and the Son, but also between us and Christ. Jesus says that he gives the Holy Spirit, the other helper. He gives a clear path that is before them. The commandments, he says, whoever keeps my, has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him. Indeed, he says in verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
This reminds us, of course, that the word of our God is commandments. Those things that he has said are a means of grace like prayer and like the sacraments of the church. His commandments are life, not, not to condemn us, but to teach us how to walk according to God's way. And here we find something that is very countercultural within our world, but trust me, it has always been countercultural, that our God has given to us his word, his law, to guide us and to lead us. Indeed, the coming of the Holy Spirit doesn't undo that. Anybody that says, well, that's the Old Testament God, the New Testament God would never make such demands upon his people. They must read the word of God. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, speaking of the promise, God says, I will, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and that's usually where everybody stops, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The giving of the Holy Spirit comes along with that process of sanctification whereby we understand more and more of God's word and walk according to it more and more. And so Jesus gives hope, Jesus gives himself, and Jesus gives help. He gives the Holy Spirit. But notice the final words of our passage. Again, this is why the whole text is taken together. We return back to the troubled heart theme in verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is not a mere formality that Jesus speaks here, but a real blessing. The peace that he gives, the words that the Apostle Paul would speak of grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord implies that the idea of peace implies that we, we are not at enmity with God that he is to us a father who cares for us, who provides for us, who supports us. That the spirit with us is not somehow an extension of God with, 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 with some kind of a fly swatter to whack us every single time we do something wrong, but rather one to support us, to empower us, to enable us to walk according to God's word. And so Jesus gives his peace, not as a formality, but as a blessing not as the world gives, because the world gives and takes away. Because the peace that the world gives is short-lasting, it is not eternal, and it certainly does not smile upon the word of God. No, the peace that Jesus gives is of a different kind of peace. It is that shalom, that peace that we find throughout the Old Testament that is promised. The peace with God and the peace with one another. Here, beloved, we bring our study then to an end. For Jesus is preparing in our text to head to the battle of the cross and he will win for his people. It is that decisive moment when Jesus will say, it is finished. Salvation is purchased. It is complete. That even as we see it ripple throughout and work its way out through redemptive history and even down to our own day, the truth of the matter is, that what Jesus accomplishes is a once-for-all salvation for his people. But notice here that in the context of our, uh, of our chapter, the disciples are facing various struggles. 
It is true that their struggles would be different than ours. It is true that Jesus is preparing to depart from them, and perhaps we cannot understand that anguish completely. But what we do know is what it is to have a troubled heart. What we do know is what it is to live in a world where we wrestle with whether or not God's will is actually being worked out. What we do understand is recognizing in our own selves a desire for something other than what God has given to us and a discontentment that seeps down to our very bones. What I want us to see, beloved, is that Jesus understands the trouble we face. He understands our hearts better than we do. And so he speaks these words of comfort and help, of assurance and hope, in order to remind us that what he is going to do and what he has accomplished on the cross is not in vain, but that rather he will bring it to completion, that he will continue with his people, that he will not let you go, that he has gone to prepare a place for you. And if he has gone to prepare a place, that he will bring you to it. And this is our hope, that our Savior cares for our troubled hearts. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy that has spoken to us in your word. For, Lord, we confess in our own hearts the way in which we are too easily led astray. How easily we are distracted by the shiny things of this world, by the promises that the world might give or the temporary peace that the world might offer. Lord, we know even our own hearts the way in which we are drawn to those various sins that we we hide away from time to time. But Lord, forgive us and help us. Help us, O Lord, to find great comfort in your word that Christ does help troubled hearts. But Lord, help our troubled hearts. Lord, may we not just hear it and, 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 and be comforted by the idea, but Lord, would you, would you indeed help and comfort those who are struggling, those who are in need, those who need hope, that, Lord, you would be glorified in their lives, that you, by your Spirit, would continue to work within our hearts and minds, that we would do all things for your praise and for your glory. Lord, may we ever be captivated by the great truth that our Savior has spoken in this passage, that he is in the Father, and the Father is in him, and he is in us, and we are in him, that we would truly abide with our Savior, Jesus Christ, all the days of our life, as we long for the day when we'll abide with him forever and eternity. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.